Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hello and welcome to Constructive Voices. I'm Steve Randall and this is a very special episode of the podcast. I drank every day for about five, six years, I think. And I thought I was doing it successfully, working in the construction industry. I was working in the offices as a technician. I didn't really think I had a problem, which is the case with many addicts. They they often are quite deluded and think that there's no issue. That's Richard Price. He's very bravely joining us to talk about his addiction. And we'll also be joined by two experts on the subject. It's going to be an interesting insight into how the construction industry has issues with addiction and how there is help out there. And of course, I'm joined, as always, by Peter Finn, Pete the Builder, in just a moment. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So, Pete, how's things? Not too bad, Steve. And yourself, how are you keeping? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Very good. We have an interesting episode today. It's perhaps slightly different to what we have talked about previously. Um, And we've got three guests, but without meaning to demean two of them, I think let's focus on Richard, who has a very, very powerful story to tell in this episode. He has been in the construction industry since qualifying at university. He's had a very, very tough time with alcohol addiction. And he came to us and said he wanted to share his story, which I think in itself is an incredibly brave thing to do. Yeah, without the shadow of a doubt, um, the first step in any process is to speak about any problem that you may have in your life. And look, in, in Richard's case, you know, we're talking about addiction here and we're talking about obviously something that's very personal to him in his life. So Richard is, is going to give us a very open and honest expression of, of how addiction, and in, in his case, it's alcoholism, affected his life. He is, is a construction worker. He, he had worked on site and then uh, moved into the, the technology side of construction. And he gives us a very honest and open picture as to how his life got um, so badly affected by his addiction. And unfortunately, Steve, it is without a shadow of a doubt something that is relevant to our industry to an awful lot of people, unfortunately. And I'm sure a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast and will know somebody that may have had an addiction problem or may have had an addiction problem themselves. And I think maybe listening to this will certainly resonate with them. Yeah. And and as somebody who runs a construction company, I mean, is this something that you have have seen maybe with people you've worked with and and how do you deal with that in that situation yeah look it's a very tricky situation um look we all have our careers and you know our careers are are orientated around construction but we all are humans and we all have life issues life problems outside of our work but the two absolutely cross over and the two are entwined in construction there was i suppose a culture over the years in some aspects of it where you know, going for a few points at the end of a week was something that was the norm. There's no doubt about it that other uh, similar problems have arisen. We obviously have a serious drug issue within our culture uh, at the moment, and that's a global issue. And again, when it comes to construction, you've got to make sure that the, that the people who are on site are safe, they're working safe, and that they are fully coherent and fit to work. If a construction worker or an employee is doing something outside of their working time that is affecting 
their performance on site without the shadow of a doubt it has to be addressed and there are procedures in place now and there are uh, supports there for people much more than there was previously and the, there's no such thing as turning the blind eye anymore that that era and that time has gone so hearing the story that Richard has is is for me it's a positive story because he he is absolutely um giving us an open book as to how his life went in that direction and also how he he has addressed that and the positive effect of that on his life so it's a very positive thing i i have had friends and and family who who have had addiction problems and i've i've seen that the the devastating effect that that has on family and friends and on on their their careers as well so you know it's not something that um we should overlook or it's not something that has has gone with the new generation of people coming through so this story i think is very relevant to us as the construction industry and look i'm delighted that we're doing what we always do here on constructive voices which is speaking about the issues that need to be spoken about really really interesting stuff and really looking forward to hearing it well said as always pete let's let's hear from our three guests hi uh, my name is richard price I've been working in the construction industry for uh, many years now. Um, I started out as a labourer, a bricklayer's labourer. I now work as a building information modelling technician. And um, yeah, just really happy to be here. Hi, I'm Mark Preston. I'm the CEO of New Foundation Counselling. Uh, we provide uh, an EAP counselling support for people working in the construction industry. Um, myself, I've been in construction for over 40 years. I'm a career quantity surveyor and, and project manager, uh, specialising in dispute resolution. Um, but as you do when you're a career quantity surveyor, I dual qualified as a psychotherapist uh, about 10 years ago and uh, spent my training hours in an alcohol agency. I'm Dr. Lucas Troutman, medical director of the Oxford Treatment Center here in Mississippi. Oxford Treatment Center is a 124-bed residential treatment center with equine therapy on 110 acres. Um, I'm an addiction psychiatrist, and I treat uh, people suffering from uh, substance use disorders on a daily basis and have since 2003 when I finished my medical training. Excellent. Well, welcome to all of you. Now, Richard, let me come to you first of all. Tell me about your addiction and and how things in the construction industry, how your your work, how your life led you to that point. Uh, I'm I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm somebody who cannot use alcohol safely. Um, my definition of an alcoholic really is somebody who, once they put alcohol into their system, they're not going to stop drinking. I know there are many different sort of ideas and definitions around what, what an addict really is, but that's that's how it makes sense to me. My sort of solution to that problem is to never drink alcohol. And so I practice a abstinence-based recovery uh, where I don't use any alcohol at all because uh, I can't use it safely. Alcohol became a problem for me, although I was always a heavy drinker. In 2012, I experienced a mental breakdown of um, severe obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an anxiety disorder, so extreme anxiety and a deep depression. And uh, I was studying construction in Swansea. um, And I quickly discovered that using alcohol would just take those symptoms away, like, you know, within minutes of drinking the first drink. Um, 
uh, it got to the point where I was drinking, you know, during my studies, you know, I was taking alcohol into the university with me in my bag. I know it sounds silly, but so I could actually focus on my writing my dissertation and that kind of thing, albeit under the influence of alcohol. Um, and then my mental health seemed to calm down for a while, but unfortunately the drinking continued and I drank every day for about five, six years, I think. And I thought I was doing it successfully working in the construction industry. I was working in the offices, um, as a technician and, um, I didn't really think I had a problem. You know, the people that I surrounded myself with, they drank quite heavily and uh, I drank on a daily basis. I I was the last person to see uh, how bad the problem was, which is the case with many addicts. They they often are quite deluded and think that there's no issue. But as our experts, I'm sure, will confirm, um, addiction will start to strip things away from your life. So people started to walk away from me. They started to walk away from wanting to be around me and, and, and that kind of thing. And I, and I lost jobs. Uh, I lost friends and I lost partners. And, um, it was all down to, I would love to blame it on just the alcohol, but it, really it's down to my behavior. You know, it was unacceptable. Um, the way I was behaving when I was drinking heavily and, um, everything just sort of spiraled out of control really. It's interesting that you, you know you refer to to Mark and Lucas as experts, and they certainly are experts. But you know, don't underestimate the expertise that you have through lived experience in this. Oh, I, I mean, certainly have that you lived know, experience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And what, what's really interesting with this is that you identify OCD um, as being an issue that was there even before you kind of got into the construction industry during your studies. That was obviously yeah. a, a big problem. And had that been a problem during your childhood as well? It's funny, actually, because I would have said no, but through various therapies that I've undertaken, we've actually seen that there was obsessive compulsive behaviors early on in childhood. Um, There was anxiety there, Um, but that sort of all laid dormant for many years. And then it just erupted in 2012, um, almost in an instant. It's, It's really difficult to explain but it's like a switch just went off in my head um and everything changed and everything has been changed since then you know I've never gotten back to the way I was before um which is hard sometimes because you know life can be um tough but it's learning to try and do it without something like alcohol um which you know is is a drug you know it's it's a legal drug that we have um in the UK and, and in America and, and lots of people are using it to try and manage pain and trauma and issues and, and that kind of thing. Mark, let, let me bring you in on this. I mean, you've heard Richard's story. Is that, I mean, I know all stories are going to be different, but is that fairly typical of the stories that you hear from those who come to you requiring help? Um, well, first I'm going to say, Richard, that was incredibly brave uh, for you to, to say all those things, and we feel sort of uh, privileged that um, you can share that with us. Um, uh, I've heard similar stories, but everybody is is, is unique in their own journey. Uh, some people have suffered trauma in their life, um, a drink to cover it up. Some people have uh, family issues. 
Um, so the, the, there are lots of variations on, on a theme. But what is quite common um, is it can take a very long time for an individual to recognise their problem. Uh, it can take longer still to take ownership of that problem and yet still further time for someone to want to seek help for that problem. And the fact that Richard has gone through that journey and, and uh, taken ownership and uh, got the help is a, a message that is worth everyone listening to because, you know, having taken the ownership and uh, recognising the problem, there is a solution. You know, recovery is possible. Lucas, let me bring you in as well on this. We've heard how Richard was already having issues that he wasn't actually fully aware of before he started using alcohol during his studies. He wasn't fully aware of his OCD. But, I mean, how common is it, and is it is it exclusively the case, perhaps, that people's addictions start with something else? It's not just a case of, let's try this substance, and then they get addicted to it. There's something else that leads them to that point at which they want to try something different? It's a really interesting question because we have people who will drink alcohol and moderately do it for the rest of their lives and never develop a alcohol use disorder. And we also have people who their neurobiology may be of such that, or genetics, uh, it could be predisposed to develop an alcohol use disorder when just a small amount of alcohol is introduced? This is a really hot topic of research. It's a great question. I think some people use alcohol to treat anxiety or OCD. Um, Other people may be in college or or maybe go to the football match and it's just endemic in the culture that we drink drink pints and maybe we have uh, too many and then our brain seeks reward from that without having anxiety or OCD. Um, what is just so inspiring, and I really I share Mark's sentiment here, is Richard is heroic, full stop. His humility, his honesty, his transformation, his public testimony and advocacy in this sphere is life saving. The reason I say that is because you know alcohol use disorder is a chronically relapsing and and remitting. Um, neurobiological disorder where stopping drinking for a month or three months is common. And people will say, people who have alcoholism, they'll say, they'll find lots of reasons not to, t- to make the full commitment to abstinence. They'll say, well, I quit drinking. I, well, I'm not hiding alcohol. I, well, I'm still going to work. So there's all kinds of reasons. You know, my liver is failing, but you know what? I am committed to never drinking again. What we do as physicians and what Mark does as a therapist, I'm sure, is we really try to meet the, the patients where they're at and we, we try to help them understand the consequences of further drinking or attempts to failed attempts at moderate drinking. And, and Rich is the ideal outcome of what we try to accomplish in medicine. It's someone who has taken full accountability has made a life transformation that no doubt has impacted relationships in a positive way, career in a positive way. And here he is able to articulate in such a beautiful way his journey and accept the fact and embrace the fact that alcohol, much like a peanut allergy, alcohol is not to be introduced again because the neurobiology will fire up, cravings will happen. And it's, and it is, it's almost like a, a deadly allergy. So what an inspiring thing to hear from Rich. I wanted to I wanted to put that out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And 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 Richard, the availability of alcohol and the fact that you know, I, I didn't go to university, but I hear lots of stories from people who did. Alcohol is certainly one of the, the the things that happens on a regular basis. And as you identified in the construction industry, you know, there can be a drinking culture. How much did the availability, but also the culture around alcohol, how much do you think that that led you to be able to almost hide your addiction in plain sight? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, while studying construction, um, I was surrounded by a lot of like-minded people um, who drank heavily and it was part of the culture. In terms of the construction industry culture, I'm sort of in the middle because I've never really been up, up, up sort of high where the stress is like so intense that perhaps you turn to alcohol. Um, you know, I do know a lot of people who who have so much stress in the industry. So I can't claim that um, the the stress of the industry or the fast pacedness of it or the, the deadline mentality that we have has affected me in terms of drinking. What I've found in terms of construction is certainly in my line of work as a technician is there's a lot of room for progression and there's a lot of room um, for career development. And so for that reason, I've kept my problem very very secret i'm you know i'm very nervous about doing this you know my company know that i'm doing this i'm happy to say that i work for a company called hydrock they're being really supportive of me doing this podcast and talking about this kind of thing but i am nervous that it's going to affect my um ability to progress within the company because you know potentially directors and people who are quite high up within the company are going to hear this and they're not necessarily going to share my views on alcoholism you know they may have their own views which are fair enough you know i can totally understand why some people see it as just you know a moral failing almost you know it's a choice you choose to pick up that drink and it's so hard to argue with that because who is forcing me to go down the shop at seven o'clock in the morning to buy a bottle of vodka you know who who's forcing that it, but at the same time, it really doesn't feel like a choice. I wonder if some of our experts might be able to comment on that as well, because it really doesn't feel like a choice when you're in the throes of it. Yeah, Rich, mm. I, I can understand exactly what you're saying. Um, but I think you'll find in a, in a, in a big company, uh, such as the one you work for, um, you will not be alone. There'll be uh, several people in, in, the, uh, in the firm that are uh, experiencing similar problems to you. You may not know it, uh, but I, I, I assure you that that is the case. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure uh, for what you've told me in private that there's a progressive culture in the, in the management system that are, are, are quite understanding. Jeremy, mm. can I sort of touch on the uh, stress issue? Yeah, please go ahead. Um, you know, in construction, we have all the components um, which um, are unhelpful in terms of stress. So we're working to very tight and often unrealistic deadlines. Uh, the money is tight. Uh, there's a lack of control o- o- often over your work uh, day, you know, you know, you know what you want to, want to do. The nature of construction often requires people to work away from home or travel long distances. There is poor management and certainly a lack of understanding of, of the issue and they don't know what to, to look for and therefore they don't know how to help. And the working conditions are, are very, very poor. I, I was on a, 
uh, a speaker platform at the uh, construction expo a couple of years ago, or just before COVID. Uh, it was led by a guy who wrote the book Happy by Design. And uh, it's all about the impact of the working environment on mental health. And uh, they followed a, a conversation about the impact of windows and, you know, whether they're drafty and, um, you know, the glare factor and how, you know, a poorly designed window could impact on mental health. And they went down the panel and asked everyone's opinion. And I said, for my clients, the question is, what is a window? Because they're working outside. They are not bothered about whether, whether a window is drafty or glare because they're, they're working in either baking hot sunshine or freezing cold or wind, windy or raining conditions. And, you know, the impact that it has day after day um, on someone's, uh, you know, behavior and their, and their stress levels and the propensity to go and have a, a warming whiskey in the evening is, uh, is, is very high. Uh, and, you know, what I'd like to see is through this sort of media and through people's honesty, such as um, you know, Richard's um, exposure, is for people to understand the frequency of alcoholism in the industry and what components there are that make it very prevalent. Absolutely. You know, Rich talked about people maybe thinking that he has a choice whether to pick up a drink or not. And when you first start drinking, and for most of us who don't have an alcohol addiction, it is a choice whether we pick up that drink or not. But maybe just kind of talk a little bit about how that choice is taken away from you when addiction uh, kicks in, you know, whether it's alcohol or whether it's drugs or whether it's gambling or, you know, whatever it may be, we, we lose control of our ability to make that choice and should not feel any blame in that sense. Yeah, I mean, um, the, I, I, I'm not an expert in the, in the science, but I do understand that alcohol does have an impact on the brain and realigns the neurons within the brain. And therefore, you know, when someone goes through a lapse or a relapse, the brain sort of takes over and, and um, you know, it, it you know, becomes less of a matter of a choice. So, uh, it, you know, sometimes takes a, a cycle of lapse or relapse for the addicted person to realize that they have to have total abstinence um, to stay in, in recovery, recovery mode. So, you know, th- there's not always a choice in the way that some people think that there might be. People have a misconception that, well, I don't drink. Why can't he not drink? If you put this substance called alcohol in your system and you have a genetic predisposition, or even if you don't, alcohol is going to work on the GABA receptor, the relaxation receptor in your brain. It's going to create relaxation. However, as time goes on, the GABA receptor will start to dysfunction. So without alcohol, you have downregulated the amount of relaxation receptors you have. And you've upregulated the amount of glutamate you have. And glutamate can be very stimulating and make you feel rotten. So someone who's put alcohol in their system consistently for months or years, when they just put that, that alcohol down, they have a changed brain. They have downregulated their GABA, upregulated their glutamate, and they feel terrible. So there's a neurobiological reason why it's very, very hard to stop drinking on your own. Richard, you're, you're an example of be, because of the, the assessment you did of what you needed for recovery, you discovered that treatment works, but it takes the honesty to say something has changed within me 
and I need help to get better. And you did that. It's just so beautiful. Brilliant. Thanks for that. Rich, I mean, support is a huge part of this, isn't it? Because not just from your company and you you said, you know, they've been fantastic and have been very supportive with you, but also those that you work with on a day-to-day basis and, of course, family and friends outside of the work environment, the support of those people is is huge. And I would suggest, particularly with something like alcohol, which is so prevalent in our society, um, that actually there's always that thing of, oh, go on, just have a drink, you know. But actually, those who are being supportive need to understand that 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 isn't something they want to be trying to get you to do. And that actually being supportive is a really important part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wouldn't, it, it, I don't think it's too extreme to say I might not be here if I didn't have the support of firstly, my family who never gave up on me, even though I think they were shocked to see um, how far down the road I'd gone. I have an incredible girlfriend who stood by me um, we have this way, addicts, sometimes of finding these very special people. Um, and she's definitely one of those people in my life that's seen me uh, at my worst and stuck by me. Um, so I was very, very lucky to have people really stick by me like that. I've been involved with rehab and I've been involved with certain support um, circles. And so sitting in a room with people with the same issue often is a real, real benefit and um, sort of peer support and that kind of thing. I really do recommend for anybody who's struggling with it, with addiction. Um, yeah, and the company I work for have been incredibly supportive. You know, this is a real taboo subject and I'm sure there are people with in the company who probably disagree with, with, with what I'm doing here, um, you know, because you want to portray an image of competence and trustworthiness and uh, reliability and all those things are not necessarily associated when people think of what an addict is. I'd like to think you're, you're wrong. And I think to a degree um, you are that, you know, you know, we are all have mental health um, in the same way as have physical health. Um, and sometimes our mental health is, is, is not great. Uh, and when it ex- extends to um, having an addiction, um, you know, people with addictions, I'm sure you agree, Rich, uh, are experts in, in hiding it. But we work in a, an extremely dangerous industry. You know, accidents, um, as recorded by HSE, rank uh, construction industry, the, the second most dangerous industry after farming. Um, and, uh, you know, being addicted to either alcohol or uh, drugs increases the danger of, um, you know, of accidents. And that's why there needs to be, in my opinion, uh, a lot more training amongst management so that they can um, spot more easily against the backdrop of someone hiding their addiction the signs that there is essentially a problem. So looking for reasons for unexplained or frequent absences, um, for looking at, uh, at changing people's behaviour, uh, looking at unexplained dips in productivity, um, trying to measure and recognise that there may the person may be involved in more accidents or near misses, or their performance or conduct issues, or that there are um, you know despite what I said about the stresses which are very prevalent, that the stress levels have increased in relation to say a new project, a, a new promotion, or different people entering into the industry, or as a result of illness, or as a result of uh, family or relationship problems. 
And, you know, I, I think we are doing reasonably well in um, training up uh, mental health first aiders, but that's probably not, you know, far enough um, in terms of training to what to look for in terms of, you know, drug and alcohol uh, misuse. I mean, do you agree, Rich? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. And, you know, I, I am a mental health first aider within the company I work for. And um, the fact that I'm an addict is on my uh, bio in, in the, in, on the intranet. Um, but yeah, certainly more awareness um, around these problems because they, in my experience, people tend to get very awkward if you try and talk about these kind of things. Um, they don't really know how to react to them. Lucas, Rich's story there is is such a, an important one to share, and and I think really important to say. You know, Rich said, "Oh, you know, uh, people may see it as a sign of weakness that he's talking about this, but actually, it feels to me, as a layperson, certainly not an expert in this, that actually him talking about it is." showing a, a, a huge amount of confidence and putting himself out there is is such an important step for him, but also for everybody else listening. That's exactly right. You know, here in the United States, we have these uh, naval special warfare officers called the U.S. Navy SEALs. And one of their, one of the hallmarks of their ethos is to, ex- what they say is take extreme ownership of your liabilities and only in doing that can you understand how to get better. It's just a complete honesty process of where are my liabilities and and how can I improve them rather than, you know, faking it that everything's okay and, you know, no big deal. You're not truly looking at liabilities unless you take a long, honest look in the mirror. And that's what Richard did. He, that is the ultimate sign of strength, in my opinion, is to take a very – to have the ego strength – that Richard has to take the look in the mirror, take accountability of the liabilities of the weaknesses and then address them. And then that becomes a strength. Then he's a mental health first aider. He has a public testimony, which is saving lives, bringing people to treatment. He's probably even a a part of the transformation within this very supportive company, which is going to save more lives and bring more people to treatment. Mark, just sort of diverging slightly from Richard's story and I you know I I don't want to even ask Richard whether this became a factor because that's not what he's here to talk about but we know that in the construction industry there is a wider issue with mental health and rates of suicide are shocking in the industry when people open up and they start to talk to you about you know maybe it's their addictions maybe it's it's mental health in in more general terms do you find that they are alluding to considering suicide? Yeah, sometimes that, that, that is the case. Um, and obviously, you know, that has to be dealt with um, extremely promptly and, seri- and seriously. But, you know, once someone has um, uh, disclosed, usually they are less likely to go through with it. But they, the first job of a, of a counsellor will be to assess how far they've gone in their suicide ideation um, and obviously, if they really planned it out, um, the risk level, you know, it, it is very high. But if they're just sort of expressing random thoughts, uh, it can usually be managed. Uh, some counsellors um, reach suicide packs with their um, clients, uh, whereby they, they undertake not to commit suicide until they've discussed it further with their counsellor. That might seem uh, an odd thing to do, but it is uh, extremely effective. 
uh, and there are obviously special agencies, um, you know, out there that can help with uh, suicide. And obviously the Samaritans is one where they've got uh, a lot of experts easy to reach um, on the phone 24-7. But, you know, unfortunately, um, as you know, um, there is a high failure record because the suicide um, level in the industry is, is extremely high. Uh, and one of our missions is to make sure that everyone really does understand what I said earlier, that everybody has mental health uh, and, and, you know, where it's impacted. Um, it's good to go and talk. It's good to go and seek professional help. And in that way, um, you know, we can more successfully deal with the issues rather than let them creep into potential suicide. Richard, did you find that getting support had sort of an immediate impact on how you felt and how you dealt with your addiction? Yeah, so it's quite interesting, actually, to point out that I tried to deny that there was a problem or that the problem was me for the longest time, believe me. Um, I lost everyone. and. I had to ask the question why that was, you know, (laughs) like it became impossible to deny the truth that, that it was my behavior and things I was doing that were just unacceptable. Um, And so I went through a process um, of recovery and it is a process, you know, I've, I've slipped up, I've relapsed. um, But we, we work a process of trying to actually change almost I don't want to say your personality, but you have to have like a sort of spiritual shift almost. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I'd be quite interested to get our experts sort of opinion on this because when I stopped drinking, um, people, people had left due to my drinking from my life. Um, when I stopped drinking, they actually came back cause they heard I'd got sober. Um, but they, they actually walked away again in my early sobriety because they found someone who was still very broken inside and someone who was still, um, very bitter and very resentful. Um, and I hadn't worked on myself to try and change those things. Um, so I was what we call in my support circles, a dry drunk. I was somebody who wasn't drinking alcohol, but I hadn't worked on myself as a person. I hadn't looked at the reasons why people had walked away. Um, And I hadn't tried to make a shift in how I treat people and how I interact with people and how I behave around people. So it wasn't until I did those things that I had started to become more successful within um, keeping sober, basically. Dr. Lucas, let's bring you in on that one, because that's an interesting point. You, You know, if somebody is treated for the addiction and we you know for various addictions there are obviously um you know things that they can be given drugs that they can be given that help with the addiction but actually even once they get sober or they get clean depending on on what their addiction may be or they stop gambling or whatever there is work to be done as as rich has identified there you then need to work on on yourself because you've been through a lot for example just purely by being through your addiction let alone whatever the underlying cause may have been. That's right. In Richard's case, he would identify OCD as something that that he he would want and need to work on. But you know, there's other people who say that they had a a childhood trauma, or they there was a some some type of spirit something spiritually lacking in their life, and they they wanted to address that. and And that really is the the crux of the work. Um, 
not only the medication to help them in the short term, but the crux of the work is is the long-term sobriety work and therapy that they do. And I suppose there's a whole area, Mark, um, on on sort of learning to love yourself again. Because once you've got to the stage that Rich obviously did, where he identified that having denied that he was the problem, his behavior was the problem for so long, he then got to the point where he realized, oh no, it was my behavior. You've then got all that that guilt, that blame within you that I guess you need to work through to get to the point where you say, no, actually, that was the result of some mental health issues and addiction, and I'm not that person. You know, I am more than that. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, learning to love yourself is, a, is an incredibly necessary thing to do and an important thing to do, and, and uh, you know, that's where professional help comes in through, through therapy, um, you know, to rebuild egos. Uh, and the like, but I was quite interested in in what Rishi was saying, and and along that theme about um, people walking away, um, you know, and, and not having that uh, unconditional positive regard for a family member or a very close friend, and I think that's born a lot out of ignorance. Um, so you've got the self ignorance in terms of you know blame and uh, what you're saying in terms of not loving yourself, but everyone sort of adding to that through their own ignorance and not accepting. Um, you know the, this thing, this thing about mental health that we we all we all have it, and uh, you know unless we can get um, you know a, a wider acceptance of that, um, it's going to be very difficult. You know, if someone um, unfortunately has a diagnosis of cancer and that affects their personality, everyone will still gather around, don't they? They'll say, "Oh, you know, poor poor chap, poor poor, poor lady, or whatever it is." Um, they offer their their you know unconditional support and accept behaviour changes and the like. But if someone's suffering from mental health issues and that leads them into addictions of of any sort, uh, alcohol we're talking about today, there's not that same degree of acceptance acceptance. But we all still have mental health in the same way as physical health. But our reaction to it, our self reaction to it, and the reaction of people around us is very very different. And you know the uh, the root cause of this is is the taboo and the lack of knowledge um, as to the cause and you know the fact that the real person's still in there. Mm. I mean that's interesting, Richard. That 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 whole thing of ignorance, people not understanding what you've gone through. How do you feel about that? Is it the case that those people who came back into your life and then have left? You know, that they just didn't understand that this was an addiction. Okay, you may be able now to not drink, but you still have some issues that actually you could really use their support for. You know, was it the case they didn't understand that or that they did understand that and they thought, no, that's not for me. I'm not getting involved in this. I think uh, personally, from my perspective of what happened, um, they tried their best to deal with me and I dragged them through hell. And they tried and they tried again. And eventually they said, you know, enough's enough. Um, And it's like you guys mentioned um, just a moment ago, you know, it's about trying to build yourself back up now. And I I mentioned, you know, I've got that support, particularly from my mother and particularly from my girlfriend. Um, I'm trying to learn to, uh, I'm in that process at the moment of trying to process the past and move on from it. Um, and say, I'm not that person anymore. Um, I try and practice very simple things like very simple things. Like, uh, if I haven't got anything nice to say, I try not to say it. And that's, that's difficult sometimes. Cause you know, I'm a human being. I want, you know, and 
uh, you know, sometimes I want to criticize and I want to, you know, I can get angry and frustrated and like, like anybody else, but I just feel like I really want to make a, a real effort to just do as little damage as possible after doing quite a lot of damage, basically. Lucas, um, I mean, simple steps. I mean, that's that's a, that's a key takeaway that I got there from from Richard because sometimes people who have any kind of issue, they they just want it sorted. They they want the whole thing solved. That's just not the way it is. Sometimes you need to take those simple steps, and you you need to set yourself realistic goals, I suppose, and and, and manage them piece by piece. Absolutely, um, I love what Mark said about unconditional positive regard. Um, two days ago, I was in the ICU with a patient who had just 46 year old uh, lady with uh, severe liver uh, dysfunction. And she said, you know, I absolutely don't want to drink. I will not drink. I'm so committed. And she believed she meant it. If we hooked her up to a polygraph, she wasn't lying. She's committed to not drinking. However, she's never been to treatment, never done the work. Um, that resistance to treatment, you know, it's 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 way more helpful for the clinician to meet that person with unconditional positive positive regard. It's such a great phrase. And um, once we talked about the need for treatment, that alcoholism is a, a chronically relapsing and remitting disease, and just because she do, she's committed to not drinking today, it doesn't mean that you know those neurotransmitters will will cause cravings down the road and she needs to be treated. And so um, she asked me, Does, are you saying I can never drink again? And, and it was a really a final, you know, question. And, and I said, you know, it's, it's from a medical standpoint, you know, the answer because your liver is failing. But what I hear people say that is more helpful to hear for you at this moment in the ICU is that we're going to take this one day at a time. And one day at a time is the small step. It's what Rich described. It's, it's, it's the thing that will put one day at a time together for 365 days for multiple years and forever, which I have no doubt Rich is, is going to achieve. But people have said that those small steps, it's much more helpful to talk about than a long forever final choice. And and let's talk about um, an element of treatment that you know possibly could be part of a treatment program. This uh, this I know is something which um, is kind of to the side of what we're talking about here. But you own and you're the head coach of um, Stardust Jiu Jitsu in Memphis, mm-hmm. and you mentor a, a team of children and adolescents from from disadvantaged backgrounds in in, in Brazilian uh, Jiu Jitsu. Mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you feel sort of things like a martial art or a physical activity or I suppose any alternative focus other than the addiction can help as part of a treatment program? I think it's, it's vital. It's social connectivity. We have a student who's in a wheelchair and we, we, and we're also a wrestling gym. So obviously a student in a wheelchair isn't going to, going to wrestle, but there are self-defense techniques that, that are valuable if someone were to get attacked, who's in a wheelchair and that person is part of our tribe. And so it's the social connectivity, which really just tr- absolutely transcends anything we're doing on those mats. Um, the social connectivity. In fact, in, in Sardinia, they did a study on why are so many people living past 100 years old? Well, really in-depth study. And there's an interesting TED talk on this that you can see on YouTube. But um, in, more important than what they ate and their exercise and if they smoked or not was social connectivity. 
So I think I think really that is the key, whether it's getting on a, a, a recreational football team. A lot of people love CrossFit. You know, a lot of people love going to the gym, doing doing races, 10Ks. We've found that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, because it can be more gentle than the ballistic wrestling that you see in the Olympics, people can do it. And they can even do it a little bit if they're in a wheelchair and still be part of the tribe. And that will yield social connectivity and hopefully long-term uh, sobriety. It's a great tool. Is, is this something you find, Mark, as well with people that you work with, that, that perhaps they have um, the focuses that are their work, they have hopefully their friends and family, and they have their addiction, which is taking up a, a, a large part of that focus, but actually being able to get them focused on something else, to introduce something, to kind of uh, you know add in an extra thing for their mind to focus on is helpful. Yeah, there's no doubt uh, busy schedule and distractions are, are helpful, particularly in the early days. Um, but we have to guard against became, becoming totally reliant on those because, you know, let, let's say in sport or wrestling or jiu-jitsu, if there's an injury and you can't, um, you know, partake in that for, say, a short number of weeks, um, you know, it, it can't have become a crutch uh, such that without it, the immediate response is to turn back to the addiction. You know, absolutely in the early days, you know, any um, extra hobbies, uh, distractions and, um, you know, other things you can do, um, do help take the mind away from uh, the addiction itself. So, yes, I think, um, and the, the work that Dr. Lucas describes is, sounds absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Steve, I have a question for Rich because he is someone who has walked to the other side of the river, so to speak. And as a physician, I think he could really be helpful in educating me and informing me Richard, I talk to a lot of patients who so obviously need to stop drinking, whether it's in liver failure. I had a patient who had a liver transplant who was still drinking on that new liver because, well, it was a new liver. It wasn't damaged. Um, and that was, that was the rationale. And oftentimes, you know, for example, I have another patient who is 46 year old, years old. He walks like a 90-year-old man. He's got early onset dementia, and he always says he's going to do it on his own, never seeks treatment, will be sober for three months, but he, he has zero tools. Um, we always want people to take the path that you took to get the treatment because treatment works, to get the tools, to, to discover this life of long-term sobriety where people are just so resilient and happy. What is it about you? And and, and how can you help me as a physician help convince other people that your path is possible and that the the doing it on your own is just something that's going to fail? What, how did you do it, Rich? It's, it's truly heroic, and, and I, I want to know the secret. Um, I think it's it's a process. And I was sat with a, with a fellow alcoholic the other day, and we were having a coffee outside the cathedral in Gloucester. And he said, um, the lucky thing about people like me and you is, is we'll keep trying to come back. So if we do do have a relapse, which can be a sip of beer, you know, a, a wedding, and you think, oh, God, I've, I've taken on alcohol. It's, it's, it's understanding that really you're trying to practice a, a state of absolute abstinence, you know. Um, I do have other motivations that keep me, keep me sober. You know, I, I have children. I didn't mention I have children now. Um, and I've literally walked into a pub, ordered a drink, sat there looking at the drink. And no, I got pictures of my kids up on my phone instead and walked straight out of that pub, you know. Um, 
I think what you mentioned earlier of explaining to people that it's a 24 hour process. Um, the idea of never drinking again is too big, I think, for the alcoholic to handle. Um, so you try and keep it in the day. You think, am I going to drink today? No, I'm not going to drink today. Maybe I'll drink tomorrow. Who knows? I'm, I'm not, I'm not bothered about tomorrow in terms of my drinking. Um, and always coming back to the idea that I need to be abstinent from alcohol. Um, as I say, I was sat with that fellow alcoholic and he said he just on, on his way to meeting me, he'd walked through, um, an alleyway and there were two people, you know, like in a doorway, almost totally unconscious, um, from, from drugs or alcohol. Um, and he said, they're the unlucky ones, you know, like we're the lucky ones that, that we keep coming back to this idea every day, you know, that we need to stay sober from alcohol. You know, that's our problem. Um, I, I don't know some, you know, <clears throat> sometimes it feels like you've had outside help, um, from a, you know, we speak of a higher power sometimes in, in circles of recovery. So I, I don't know. Um, totally. It's a mixture of things, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's so empowering and inspiring to hear. And, and I, I really appreciate that you are in a supportive company that allows you to do a podcast like this because your testimony will, will, will avert death for many people. And I'm sure of that. And that's great to hear. And, 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 and that's, you know, kind of the reason that we, we do conversations like this is to, to help others feel that they are not alone, that their story is not the, the only one, um, you know, that others understand them and that those who haven't been through addiction will also at least try to understand them. And, and Mark, you know, you've been in the construction industry for, for many, many years. What would you like to see? happen now from a discussion like this people who are listening whether they're jobbing builders on site or whether they're executives sitting in their offices what would you like to to be the next step towards helping support people with addiction increased awareness training um people trying to look at the uh the signs so that uh help can be uh given to uh, provide the support at the earliest possible time and also the recognition of the impact of stress and, and, and understand how that stress can be managed. Um, you know, we are in a difficult industry and it can't be removed altogether, but it, but it can be managed. Um, and it's interesting, Rich said that, you know, he didn't feel um, that, 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 that stress um, sometimes in his own work, uh, which just demonstrates that, um, you know, if, if someone's looking at the processes, uh, you know, the workload can be spread um, people can be uh, asked, um, you know, how they want to do the work, so they can manage more uh, easily their own uh, work processes, which, which which reduces stress. And if all these things come together, you know, the ability to talk about it, the ability to see the signs, the ability to manage stress, and the um, the awareness of how and when to get support, then I think that we can make some big strides forwards. Uh, to reduce uh, suicide in injury and reduce the accidents um, that undoubtedly come as a result of people working when they shouldn't do uh, under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And I guess that awareness training needs to be cultural. It needs to be throughout the whole of every organisation because if just managers go on it or just those on site go on it, 
that that doesn't cover it off everywhere. No, absolutely. It has to be uh, right through the chain. Um, and one of the issues that, that I have in the industry, um, noticing the difference between tier one contractors and those right down the bottom of the supply chain, you know, the tier one contractors are getting better at uh, recognizing and dealing with mental health support. But the people that do uh, the actual work, which represents 80% of uh, the 2.1 million or so people in the industry, do not work for tier one contractors. They are subcontractors and they might be in firms with, you know, them and their their brother or, you know, three or four colleagues. Certainly uh, 80% of construction firms in the UK employ less than, than 13 people. Um, so it's, it's, it's understanding the nature of the industry and, and, and working out ways uh, that we can reach the majority of people that haven't got the uh, the resource the resources to get the training and the awareness. It's, it's you know really working on that um, process, uh, and that's what I'd like to see happening. That the tier one contractors uh, respect and understand um, the people that help them make money to provide. Uh, easy access to the support and the training and the awareness that they need. And I think that will make the biggest difference of all. Dr. Lucas, the same question to you. What would you like to see happen next? You know, I think this is a question of uh, just human values almost. Um, For example, in the United States, we have uh, more and more of our construction workers have gone from full employees to, quote, contracted labor. And so what happens in that in those cases are that the, the employer really even stops doing any kind of drug testing and there isn't an investment in making sure that there's a healthy workforce. They want the work to get done and they almost kind of turned a blind eye to, to whether their uh, staff members, their contracted labor is suffering or not. So I think that the solution, this is just so esoteric, is an investment in the workforce, a, a care for people, a care, uh, understanding that these are people that are working, yes, but they also have families and they have kids and really personalizing through awareness of the suffering of alcoholism and uh, illicit drug use, how, how this really impacts uh, families and, and workers and kids and spouses, and then for the employer to take ownership of we care for these people and, and a tool would be to not only ensure that they're sober in their work, but also if they're not becoming a supportive uh, employer, even if it may not benefit the employer, it's just the right thing to do from a values perspective. And Richard, I want to give the, the last word to you. We, we, you know, we, we've already heard so much praise from Dr. Lucas and from Mark on you opening up and sharing your journey with us. Uh, and I want to add to that and just say a big thank you on behalf of Constructive Voices for for being willing to do this and for being open and honest about it and and sharing your story. And, and as I say, I want to give you the last word on this. What do you want to see come from you putting yourself out there, sharing your story and raising awareness of this issue? I would just like to, for, for companies within the industry um, and any industry, I suppose, really, to create an environment where people aren't afraid to come forward and talk about these things. You know, they don't have to do it as publicly as this. They could, but feel comfortable enough to go to their HR department or something like that. Um, and say, do you know what? I've, I'm having a problem with the substance. Um, because for me, keeping it secret and, um, not opening up about it has all been about 
fear of losing your job, essentially. That, that's what it's been for me. Um, and I imagine that a lot of people are in the same boat, you know, the fear, especially with drugs as well, like illegal drugs, because there's an extra stigma attached to those as well. So people feel even more um, unable to come forward and say, you know, I, I'm having an, addic- an addictive problem with, with an illegal substance. Um, just creating an environment where people don't feel that fear. Um, they feel safe that if they're serious about doing something about it, that they're going to get the support they need and they're not going to be thrown away in some way. Cause that's what I was scared of. And that's what I'm still scared of. You know, it, you know, it, it is, it's the kind of subject that is, is hard to talk about and you do worry about people making judgments and, and that affecting you negatively in some way um, and, and limiting what you can do and where you can go and, you know, um, yeah, so just, just creating an environment where people just feel safe enough to come forward and talk about it. Well, Richard, long may the support that you've been shown so far, long may that continue. And also, we wish you well with your ongoing recovery. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. And thank you, Mark and Dr. Lucas. Thank you for being on Constructive Voices too. You're welcome. Thank you very much. All. Thank you, Steve. This is Constructive Voices. So, Pete, what an open and honest discussion. And, you know, as we said at the beginning, all three of our guests were brilliant. Mark and Lucas with their insights from obviously the the side of, of helping people with addiction. But, you know, we've got to single out Richard because to be brave enough to share his story in an open forum like this and he... He highlighted how, you know, he has some concerns around how that may affect his career, but he felt that he needed to tell his story. And I think an incredibly brave and fantastic thing to do. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, absolutely. The the bravery and the honesty shown by Richard Eyre was was phenomenal. And it gives you a clear and and honest insight into, you know, the effects that, you know, addiction can have on on your personal life and also, you know, your family and friends and, then obviously that leads into your career. So brilliant, brilliant insight. And, and I have to say, uh, having having such strong guests on, on that conversation was very important uh, for us because, you know, it's a sensitive subject and it's something that needs to be approached in the right way. And I really do think we've, we had a very, very honest uh, reflection as to um, how it is to be the person who has the addiction problem and the perspectives from the people who are there to try and help and support um, people in these issues. So obviously when it comes to addiction, there's there's long roads ahead and the guys speak about that the, the every day as it comes. Fantastic stuff, Steve. I, I, I found it really interesting and I, I, I really was, was was hanging on every word and, and uh, it gave a great insight. And, and it's, it's also good to know that there are supports there and that, that people are, you know, that the our industry is willing to help and willing to support anybody that has those issues. So if there is anybody listening here today, obviously reach out, get help, and and start taking that first step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those situations where I'm sure Richard would say, you know, if, if it helps one person to be able to get help quicker than he did and, and, and to avoid it becoming such an issue, then, you know, his, his work is done here because – you know, that's that's what he wants to do, raise the awareness and help others. Uh, Pete, great as always. We'll speak again on the next episode. Absolutely, Steve. Talk to you soon, my man. 
And that's all for this episode of Constructive Voices. Please take a moment to share it with others who may find it interesting. Follow or subscribe to get the latest episodes automatically on your favourite podcast app and rate and review the podcast if you can. You can also listen to the latest episode by saying, Alexa, play Constructive Voices podcast. Here's Constructive Voices. Here's the latest episode. And on our website, where there's lots more information too. That's constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. Until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Music.